This is our last round for the academic year. Uh, we will take a break in June, July, and August. We'll be back in September, uh, always at our first Wednesday of the month. Um, and we, we pay particular attention to who gives the rounds in September and who gives the rounds in May, because these are the bookends. And it is thrilling for us to be able to bring to you Sandra Sujin Lee, um, who has joined us in January as the, the um, chief of the Division of Ethics in our new Department of Medical Humanities and Ethics. Um, I have, I, I, I know Dr. Lin's work in great detail, uh, not because I ever um, taught with her or wrote with her, but because I recruited her. <laughs> and as we, as we were looking for a founding division director of our Division of Ethics, um, it was critical that we find someone who was not a standard, run-of-the-mill bioethicist, but someone who came with strong training in the humanities discipline and who came with the nerve to be able to critique a lot of what was going on, not only, again, in standard ethics topics, but in the practice of medicine and the conduct of science today. One of the reasons that we started this department, Medical Humanities and Ethics, was to be the active, critical companion to the growth of precision medicine and genomic medicine, which we at Columbia, of course, have been leaders in and architects of. And yet all of us who do this work, whether in the Department of Genomic Medicine or in Molecular Biology or in even any of the divisions of medicine where we are doing uh, uh, precision medicine in nephrology and in rheumatology and in oncology, <clears throat> we all knew that there are vast ethical uh, pitfalls and vast ethical questions that haven't even been asked. And so we did a very rigorous national search and interviewed many of the leading bioethicists, um, and we felt very, very fortunate that we, um, how can I say, um, we won. <laughs> and Sandra Sujin Lee chose to come here to Columbia. Um, she is a medical anthropologist. Her PhD is from University of California at Berkeley. Uh, she has been at Stanford for, um, I think, since, since her PhD or soon thereafter. Uh, coming to the Center for Ethics at Stanford, <clears throat> did a postdoc there, um, from the beginning has been um, uh, well-funded, independently uh, developing her own research agenda. Um, she has been studying questions of racialization in biology, making profound, seminal, uh, um, um, influence on the very thinking about the category of race and how that enters into medicine, biology, and science. Uh, she has been working in the, the genomic field, genomics, stem cell, um, and even the genomic marketplace, asking questions about what happens to those who contribute their genomes to the NIH biobank, what happens to people who send their swab to 23andMe and find out things about who's their father and who's not their father. Um, um, so that she has become a trenchant critique and inquirer of the things that, that are becoming commonplace 
becoming commonplace, um, you will see what she's talking about tonight, among other things, is even how do we, what language do we use in describing who owns the information about our bodies? And what are the differences on the basis of class and race and ethnicity and language in terms of who's willing to give their genomes away? Who thinks it's a risk? Who thinks it's a benefit? That's all I will say. Um, and I feel like a uh, gift I'm giving you to bring Sandra Susan Lee to the podium. And that was a wonderful introduction. Thank you, uh, Rita. Everyone has been so welcoming. Uh, and uh, I feel very fortunate to be part of the community here at Columbia. Um, and I'm excited uh, because I think there's fertile ground here at this institution for collaboration across the fields. Um, and so I, I welcome uh, your questions and your challenges and, and, and our thinking together about some of the issues that I'm going to be speaking about tonight. Um, as a medical anthropologist, I'm, I'm interested in the sociocultural influences on human suffering and healing, and in particular, how science, technology, and medicine create and influence uh, these experiences. Uh, I'm interested in how do we see and conceive uh, the sick, the healthy, the healer, and the healed, and questions that rely um, very much on the interpretation of core concepts of what it means to be human. I've been working, um, as Rita has suggested, at the intersections of anthropology and philosophy, and I'm interested in the ontological study of concepts that directly relate to being in particular categories uh, of being and their relations. And um, there are certain heroes that I have and certain mentors in the field, and one of them is, is Paul Rabinow, um, who's an anthropologist at, at Berkeley, who um, studies the contemporary world and really focuses on emerging technologies and um, is concerned about adopting a strategy of designing techniques to change philosophic discussions into topics of inquiry in the broad sense uh, and incorporate a vigorous empirical investigation guided by conceptual reflection. And that's, uh, I, I resonate with that approach and have tried to adopt that in my own work. Um, in many ways, we share a common concern how things like genes, biospecimens, racial categories come into existence, our names, sustained, distributed, modified, how they shape uh, human experience. Now, as an anthropologist, I am also attuned to the importance of place and context, and I, I do see myself as an anthropologist of American culture in many ways. I am interested in how technologies are shaped by place. How does America in the, this early 21st century inform our practices and the meaning making we engage in and what it means to be an American uh, at this moment given the emerging technologies that we are engaging with. As a bioethicist, I'm concerned with the normative questions of health equity and social justice and the adjudication of values and the competing trade-offs uh, that reflect how we identify and assess human difference. And my approach as a social scientist is always to engage in what is referred to as empirical bioethics, in which there is a focus on emerging real-world issues that raise ethical questions that are then addressed through the use of social scientific tools and methods to conduct innovative research and that examines uh, human practice and behavior. So, so this is where, uh, just to orient folks in terms of where I am positioned in my work and, and in my training, and what I hope to accomplish uh, here in the Division of Ethics. Um, so wh what does this have to do with metaphors? <laughs> uh, so what I'm gonna argue um, is that, you know, metaphors are certainly the object of study, and this, I probably don't need to say this to this particular audience. Um, at the end, it's, it's at the intersection of anthropology, linguistics, and literature, and I'm gonna argue um, in this presentation that it should also be a concern for bioethics. Um, so, so in terms of defining it, let's get started. Um, what is a metaphor? Well, coming from the Greek root of metaphora to transfer, it is a powerful communication tool that draws parallels between seemingly unrelated subjects to clarify the meaning of a complex uh, situation. 
Metaphors foster clarity and transfer significance effectively and economically. The essence of metaphor is understanding and experiencing one kind of thing in terms of another. And here we have, um, you can see this, this metaphor of war and disease is very common. I think uh, most of us have encountered it in terms of descriptions of, of disease. Um, and it takes on um, a way of thinking. And here um, you'll see this picture that was used by Cancer Research UK um, in their uh, national fundraising campaign. Uh, called Stand Up to Cancer, where they called on gamers to take on the fight against the disease. And, and it's a very common way of thinking about disease. Um, disease is the enemy. I treat all my patients aggressively. Yeah. Physician is a warrior captain. Uh, she's a good fighter, meaning the patient. Patient is a battleground, uh, and certainly um, the war on cancer uh, seems to be ubiquitous. George Lakoff, cognitive linguist and philosopher, and his co-author philosopher um, Mark Johnson, in their seminal work, uh, Metaphors We Live By, um, make this plain. And, and when, when they, they write, our concepts structure what we perceive, how we get around in the world, and how we relate to other people. Our conceptual system thus plays a central role in defining our everyday realities. If we are right in suggesting that our conceptual system is largely metaphorical, then the way we think, what we experience, what we do every day is very much a matter uh, of metaphor. And so taking a constructivist perspective on metaphors, we understand the cr critical role it has in learning as a process of synthesis in which we actively employ what is already familiar to us uh, to understand what is unfamiliar. And as such, that view of learning is not just a collection of different nuggets of information, but it's a continual reformulation of what is already conceptually understood that produces new knowledge. Uh, metaphors can be an instrument to the process of change, and here I'm reminded of Thomas Kuhn's work uh, in his 1962 work, The Structure of Scientific Relations, uh, Revolutions, um, in which he refers to the theory of his, in the history of science as paradigm shifts, in which reformulations create new pathways for scientific progress. Uh, and, and many have shown that metaphors are central to the ways in which scientists have communicated to each other about these new ideas. Um, now, in the era of the Human Genome Project, uh, even just a cursory review of how the, the Human Genome Project has been relayed to the public, we can see that it's replete with powerful metaphors. Uh, and the most common um, are, are metaphors uh, such as the book and the code. And here, um, this is from Francis Collins in 2000, where he describes um, the, the completion of the Human Gen Genome Project. It is humbling for me and awe-inspiring to realize that we have caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book, previously known only to God. What a pro profound responsibility it is to do this work. Historians will consider this a turning point. I'm happy that today the only race we are talking about is the human race. And so here we see the powerful uh, use of the metaphor of a book that's being slowly revealed to us through the work of science, uh, one that is already complete, but that is slowly revealing itself each page uh, at a time. Um, here, Nicholas Wade, longtime science writer for the New York Times, uh, also uh, uh, reiterates this idea of a book. When the working draft of the human genome was produced, consortium scientists called it the book of life, with each chromosome a chapter. In the edition published today, small sections at the beginning, end, and middle of each chapter are blank, along with some 400 assorted paragraphs whose text is missing, although the length of the missing passages is known. So here we're taking... Uh, this idea of the book and trying to relay it to the public and have them understand how this science is going to occur in terms of revealing uh, those, missing, uh, those missing passages. Genetic code is also a particular metaphor that has been used. Um, this is, of course, familiar to you all in terms of uh, the headline, the genetic code of human life is cracked uh, by scientists. We see that the metaphors used over the last decade um, have really focused on this idea of a code in which scientists are trying to crack or break uh, that code and reveal how we are all uh, made up in terms of our genome. Um, now, we know that these metaphors that have been used in the last decade actually have origins, historical origins, much further 
uh, back than, um, than the Human Genome Project. Um, and here, this is the beginning, this is a 1987 New York Times article um, where the book and the code are, are being used as a way of describing this to the public. Um, but we can even go further back uh, to physicist Erwin Schrödinger in 1944 in his very popular scientific book, What is Life?, um, where he is describing uh, genomics, the molecular biolo biological processes, um, as, uh, as a code script. And so he says it is these chromosomes that contain this, in some kind of code script the entire pattern of the individual's future development and of its functioning in mature state. Every complete set of chromosomes contains the full code. So there are, as a rule, two copies of, a late, of the latter in the fertilized egg cell, which forms the earliest stage of the future individual. And here, again, um, we see the use of a metaphor as a way of trying to explain what was then uh, new and interesting ideas, complex ideas. We see that metaphors that can be quite useful in communicating new concepts and perhaps generating new scientific hypotheses, but they can also be restrictive. So uh, many have written about the code in the book as being um, a way of thinking about the genome as fixed and unchanging and deterministic, and that they may have a last, which is, I, I would argue, and others have as well, would have a lasting impact on how we think about disease vis-a-vis -vis genes. So the introduction of um, thinking about behavioral traits in terms of environment and other determinants of health are, are almost... Uh, cut off in terms of some of the metaphors that we've been using in terms of the genome. And um, Evelyn Fox Keller, um, a physicist, feminist, philosopher, and historian, has analyzed the power of metaphors, and she has uh, raised a question which I think we should take seriously about the fitness of various metaphors and to be thinking about how these different metaphors might have uh, different effects. Not all metaphors are equally useful. The effectiveness of a metaphor depends on a shared social, on shared social conventions, on the authority conventionally granted to those who use it. But what about the scientific effectiveness of a metaphor? Are not some metaphors more cognitively and technologically productive than others? Undoubtedly they are, but perhaps more interestingly, they may produce, they may be productive of different effects. And here she's talking about the use of metaphors within the scientific realm. What I would have us think about is how those metaphors then, as they amplify certain scientific concepts and, taken, and are taken up by the public, how that fitness uh, works depending on who's consuming these, these uh, metaphors. Uh, miscommunication about science, um, and I'm starting with this premise, that is, it's not just about a knowledge gap. Communication about scientific research to the public often builds on this idea of a deficit model that presupposes a knowledge gap and focuses on the transmission of facts. However, a recent meta-analysis reveals that science, science liter uh, literacy accounts for only a small fraction of the variance in how the public forms opinions about new and controversial areas of science. Far stronger influences on public attitudes about science are value dispositions and socio-historical experience with the institution and actors involved. As such, the degree of public trust in scientific research may be shaped largely by fast cognition and contextual tools and the kinds of things that are transferred in these metaphors that we should pay attention to. In his final chapter of Lakoff and Johnson's book, uh, in their final chapter, he, uh, they write about the need for metaphorical imagination. And, and I'm just going to quote here um, from what they've, they've written. When people are talking uh, when people who are talking don't share the same culture, knowledge, values, and assumptions, mutual understanding can be especially difficult. Such understanding is possible through the negotiation of meaning. To negotiate meaning with somebody, you have to become aware and respect both the differences in your backgrounds and when these differences are important. You need enough diversity of cultural and personal experience to be aware that divergent worldviews exist and what they might be and what they might be like. You also need patience, a certain flexibility in worldview, and a generous tolerance for mistakes, as well as a talent for finding the right metaphor to communicate the relevant parts of unshared experiences or to highlight the shared experiences while de-emphasizing de the others. Metaphorical imagination is a crucial skill in creating rapport and communicating the nature of unshared experience. 
The skill consists in large measure of the ability to bend your worldview and adjust the way you categorize your experience. So bracketing that, um, thinking about this work that has been going on in terms of the power of metaphors, I want to turn to the domain of interest here in terms of precision medicine, and I, I'm sure this crowd doesn't need an introduction to precision medicine, but I, I will say that um, as my collaborators, collaborators and I have been thinking about metaphors in this context, we've been trying to um, look at the kinds of language that's been used to describe precision medicine to the general public. Uh, this era of precision medicine, even though it predates um, perhaps this particular moment, this uh, uh, State of the Union speech uh, by Barack, uh, Barack Obama in 2015, um, I think it crystallizes uh, this era uh, in many ways for the public. Um, now, this, uh, what was originally called the Precision Medicine Initiative, and it was renamed in 2016 as the All of Us Initiative, uh, really had this goal of embarking on a new era of medicine through research technology and policies that quote, empower patients, researchers, and providers to work together toward the de development of individualized care. So that was the goal uh, with precision medicine, um, at least as it was, it was described uh, by, the, by uh, Pre President Obama. Now, under the PMI proposal, uh, we've invested quite heavily uh, in the All of Us project, as well as other precision medicine initiatives, and the NIH has has uh, received over uh, 500 million to develop a research cohort of more than a million volunteers in the United States to create one of the largest national biobanking repositories in American history. And this is then um, augmented by the investment uh, with the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, uh, which included $3 billion to be split by the PMI, or the All of Us Project, and the Brain Research um, Initiative um, now, what does this initiative attempt to do? Um, so this is an initiative that is really asking uh, one million American volunteers to share a comprehensive set of data with the government, uh, which includes their medical history, profiles of their genes, uh, metabolites, microorganisms, environmental and lifestyle data, and patient-generated information um, from individual personal devices and other types of, uh, of, of sensor data. Um, and they will be asked to continue to update uh, their information for at least a decade after enrolling. Now, the, how is this relayed to the public? Well, um, this is one way it's been relayed, as really kind of almost a civic duty uh, to come and bring your data and your biospecimens uh, in order to support uh, the nation's health. Uh, but the focus um, really seems to be on this idea of patients as partners. So it's, it's an interesting tension, not just as human subjects or passive subjects, but really one that would have access to all of your information, uh, that you would be able to design and help guide the research, and to be able to sit on steering committees and advisory boards in terms of the governance of this particular repository. So this focus um, is, is aimed not uh, well, certainly to the general public, but if we look at the All of Us uh, project, there are particular population targets um, that are in place that really focus on those who are underrepresented uh, historically in biomedical research. And, and that's not without reason. Uh, we certainly know that there has been a long-standing uh, disparity in terms of participation in genetic research. This is a, a study that was conducted um, by my uh, previous colleague, Carlos Bustamante, and his, his um, co-authors uh, in 2011 that was published in Nature. And, and what they did was they looked at uh, the genome-wide association studies that were being conducted, and they were interested in who's part of these studies. Uh, and what they found um, was that there seemed to be a sampling bias um, quite overwhelming. 96% uh, of those studies uh, involved Euro individuals with European of European descent, um, with a measly 4% uh, represented uh, among non-European descent. Um, and why do we care? 
Um, I mean, this becomes a, not just a socio-political question about research participation, but it actually presents quite a, a scientific technical question, um, an important issue for, for genome scientists who are interested in trying to identify variants as causal for disease. And what gets in the way is, is when you have a repository that's so skewed for one particular population, uh, what you might find may be an artifact of simple genetic population substructure where you see here there are differences among, uh, across the different groups in terms of uh, rare variants. And so if you haven't captured those uh, populations in your repository, you may have spurious findings. So this becomes a very important issue and it has, um, it has uh, confounded uh, some of the studies in terms of rep uh, rep uh, replication and whatnot. So that was 2011. In 2016, my colleagues Alice Popejoy and, and Malia Fullerton um, went back and revisited. Have we made progress in terms of, uh, of the numbers? And what they found um, was a little bit of progress. Uh, you'll see here in, in, in 2009, you had that 96% a figure, and in 2016, what they found was 81%. Now, we would, you would think that we would be encouraged by this, uh, this decrease, but in fact, if you start to dig through where did we make the most progress, we made the most progress among East Asian populations, uh, mainly studies that were conducted in East Asia. And if you look at uh, the African-American population, um, or uh, Hispanic population, Native American populations, very little in terms of moving that needle. And so uh, their conclusion was that we still are suffering from uh, a sampling bias. Now why is this the picture that we see? Uh, many have uh, conducted studies and, and written about uh, the persistent problem of trust in terms of individuals wanting to participate in biomedical research, and certainly this comes uh, directly from a particular history that populations have had with the biomedical uh, research enterprise. And so it's no wonder, I suppose, uh, to, that we see this type of disparity. So what is it that we can do uh, to start to recover trust? And this is where I think communication, uh, transparency, uh, a real interrogation about how we are uh, marketing and recruiting individuals into these type of projects uh, becomes really important. Um, improving communication by addressing differences in culture, values, and group history it is the first step, I think, of promoting public trust uh, in science. Several studies suggest sociocultural differences such as linguistic barriers and the lack of recognition of group history may prevent certain groups from participating in biomedical research. Uh, it's, it shows that studies have shown that metaphors not only affect how people understand um, these various con concepts um, that are coming out through uh, the public media, but can also influence behavior and shape public discourse and policy. So it matters uh, whether recombinant DNA, for example, historically was, was characterized as a biological holocaust, a Frankenstein, a dramatist strain in the 1970s versus um, other kinds of metaphors that would would, would describe it as something as a, uh, as a revolution, a miracle, or frontier. We make strategic decisions based on the kinds of messages um, that we are trying to get across. Studies compares, comparing descriptions of the flu uh, literally as a virus compared to metaphorically as a beast, riot, army, or weed found that more individuals who received the metaphorical descriptions were willing to get vaccinated. So, do we use this as a way of controlling behavior? Um, how, how do we then um, describe uh, these, these types of um, public health issues? On the other hand, randomized trials comparing the effects of two descriptions of the problem of crime that were identical except for the use of virus or the beast metaphor found that, that those receiving the virus metaphor were significantly more likely to recommend social policy remedies over enforcement or punishment strategies than those that received the beast metaphor. So metaphors can have unanticipated meanings and effects whereby altering even a single word metaphor in communication can measurably affect um, uh, behavior and attitudes. One study found that explaining randomization in cancer trials to patients as a coin flip 
could lead to negative associations because the perception that their cancer treatment was being treated as a game with winners or losers, and that researchers were gambling with people's lives. Another study found that metaphorically framing cancer uh, as an enemy could have the unintended effect of decreasing engagement in preventative behaviors and thus potentially harmful to the public health context as opposed to the treatment context where actively aggressively uh, acting aggressively towards enemies was seen to be much more effective in terms of a metaphor. So to the extent that metaphors are imbued with meaning based on experiences and experiences are fundamentally culturally shaped at the social as well as the individual level, it's not surprising that seemingly identical metaphors may have opposing emotional, evaluative, and normative entailments. So for example, uh, it's noted that while in German, the heart joyfully pounds, beats, or jumps, this positive rhythmic action is missing in the Chinese. When it palpitates, this is considered to be negative, characteristic of a heart in fear or danger. Furthermore, the idiom of a rolling stone gathers no moss is used in a derogatory sense in Britain in contrast to its mostly con positive connotation in the United States, reflecting the cultural importance in per uh, of, impermanence, of permanence versus mobility. Thus, sometimes metaphors contribute their own complexity of communication by creating misunderstanding or inappropriate balance of relevant information that may have practical or unintended effects on people's understanding. Using metaphors that are mismatched to fundamental constructions of health and disease can have real effects on health, as illustrated by unsuccessful diabetes programs in native communities in Canada that employed the Western body as machine metaphor rather than the more salient, native-centric alternative of balance between nature and the community. And so these kinds of metaphors really can change uh, the way in which these various health programs can, um, can achieve their goals. Um, so what I want to do is, is just to illustrate the high stakes of mis miscommunication and also to describe how one might go about studying um, these, these type of things is to refer you to a study that was conducted by my colleagues at Stanford on this uh, idea of treatable. So this is a study that uh, this publication recently came out where my colleagues uh, wanted to explore the word, explore the word treatable um, and to understand how non-physicians and physicians interpreted this word. So they used a symbolic interactionist uh, model um, in this small qualitative study. And the assumption was that individuals interpret words based on social context. And so what they did is they conducted in-depth interviews and they gave um, a couple of uh, probes uh, to their participants. One was a general question in which a physician tells a seriously ill patient that their condition is treatable. In the second, um, they gave a scenario-based question in which the physician describes incurable uh, metastatic um, cholangiocarcinoma as treatable with reference to palliative radiation. They intentionally chose the latter as, as, as a grim scenario because they wanted to challenge um, the positive implications that they hypothesized that some participants would associate with the word treatable. And, and what they found was that there were two concepts of the word treatable. Um, one in which it was good news and the other action-oriented. And the overwhelming majority of, of non-physicians adopted this idea of the good news concept from the word treatable, whereas physicians almost exclusively adopted this action-oriented concept. And, and the, the distinction was important because of the take-home that um, the, the take-home message was different depending on whether or not they were conceptualized as one or the other. So non-physicians often perceive the word treatable as conveying good news about prognosis, including cures, survival, and increased length of life. They frame good news in everyday language. The patient will be okay, the situation is going to get better, or the physician can fix it. Many thought the word treatable conveyed good news for quality of life, expressing sentiments like, my life will be good, and I'll be able to do all the things I did before. They describe freedom from the effects of disease, explaining that patients with treatable diseases are not going to have to deal with it. Many felt that treatable means there's hope, uh, with several going as far as saying treatable equals hope. By contrast, the action-oriented concept assumes a patient says the word treatable to convey that physicians have an action and an intervention available, 
but does not necessarily imply an improved prognosis or quality of life. It views treatment as a physician's tool to address discrete clinical problems. Physicians generally felt that the word treatable conveys that intervention exists and can be offered, but they did not feel that treatable consistently implies a clear net benefit for the patient. In some cases, physicians discuss the interventions that provide little, if any, benefit for the patient and even pose significant risks. Physicians articulated two reasons why the word treatable does not convey any consistent information about prognosis or quality of life. First, the word treatable is used with reference to a wide range of clinical goals. In one instance, the word treatable may imply curative intent, whereas in another, the word treatable may refer to an intervention that, <clears throat> that aims to palliate uh, symptoms. Second, the word treatable does not convey that the intervention will successfully achieve its goal. It's treatable, but only 10% of patients respond to the treatment. Thus, the implication of the word treatable varies substantially based on the clinical context and the intention of the speaking physician. So this, this came out, and these are some of the, the, um, the excerpts from the interviews that were, were uh, analyzed in terms of how these different groups were thinking about the word treatable and, uh, and refracting very different sense of what one's future uh, was based on, on these words. And just to put it in stark relief, um, and granted this is a very small study, but the, the differences between the groups um, was, it was actually very significant. Um, so this clearly, I think, show, demonstrates the misfires in communication when there's a lack of shared experience, background knowledge, and, and, and understanding or intention around language that can lead to inc incorrect uh, inferences um, about the others, in this case the, the physicians and their intentions um, to explain puzzles in um, studies of commu commu uh, clinical communication. So the complexity of precision medicine research, I think, um, only uh, accentuates some of the difficulty around uh, communication. Uh, precision medicine research and the collection, use, and sharing of personal information demands careful consideration of how information is going to be uh, communicated to potential in, uh, participants. In fact, the term precision medicine itself is metaphorical, emphasizing a focus on data as opposed to uh, treatment of individuals. Now, this term was consciously chosen by the National Research Council in 2011 to replace the more widely used term personalized medicine. So some of you must, if you've been following this, this, these approaches and these initiatives, must have noticed that we've gone from personalized medicine to individualized medicine to precision medicine, and that has been deliberate on the part of trying to accentuate different aspects um, of these initiatives. Um, in this case, the National Research Council wanted to specifically discourage literal translate, uh, interpretation that it means the creation of drugs or medical devices that are unique to a particular patient, but rather the ability to class classify individuals into subpopulations that differ in susceptibility to a particular disease and their response to a specific treatment. So that distinction might be subtle, but the idea there is that uh, instead of individualized medicine, we're really thinking about populations and different, um, different levels of risk. Um, Yes, recent scholarships suggest that the change in focus from uh, the unique tailoring of personalized medicine um, really hasn't uh, seeped into the ways in which uh, the public has, has thought about these things. These rhetorical changes in characterizing precision medicine may present different ethical questions, uh, such as the potential for therapeutic misconception with the blurring boundary between research and clinical care, and reveal uh, ideological shifts that bear on public expectations in participating in precision medicine. And, and what we found in our own work, which I'll tell you a little bit about, um, is, is, is just that. Even as scholars have analyzed the rationale for the rhetorical transitions from personalized medicine to individualized medicine to precision medicine, from the perspectives of scientists and policymakers, little consideration has been given to how these nuanced differences uh, impact understanding expectations and assumptions across diverse social cultural groups. Um, <clears throat> so careful assessment and selection of metaphors uh, to convey complex concepts and the potential value of research is a fundamental scientific responsibility and I would say an ethical issue. 
Celeste Condu, um, who is a communication specialist, suggests that neglecting to interrogate the broad range of meanings of metaphors and using metaphors based on presumption uh, or presupposition could be perilous and may result in the communication missing its mark. Given the importance and the potential impact of metaphors on public attitudes and willingness to participate in biomedical search, uh, our team was interested in how metaphors um, are communicated uh, when they are describing uh, precision medicine to diverse populations and how uh, the range of socioeconomic, racial, and ethnic linguistic backgrounds impact um, that consumption. And so our study, um, which I'll tell you about, but was really influenced by two preceding studies. The first is um, what we call the ROMP study, and this was fun. This was a, a collaboration between the Stanford CTSA and the University of Washington CTSA, uh, funded by NCATS, where um, we were really interested in the learning healthcare system and how uh, patients understood randomization. So the idea that a patient would come in, and uh, it may be the case that you had three approved drugs. Um, FDA approved drugs, but uh, the, the either the physician or the institution may have been randomized in a particular trial uh, to give out a certain uh, type of drug. And the question was, do patients need to actually consent to this, uh, given that they're FDA approved drugs, and um, or can and can it be considered quality improvement? Um, or do they need to be explicitly consented and how? And so we thought it would be important to, to ask the patients themselves. And as part of this, um, we developed uh, a set of videos and, and comics, as you see here, trying to explain what was fairly complex um, in terms of what, was, what we were asking them to weigh in on, um, on these various uh, randomization trials. Um, and so explaining randomization is actually quite difficult um, to, to do. And so we tried various um, ways of doing this, the rolling of the dice, the flipping of the coin. Um, there are strong reactions to that, uh, similar to what I mentioned previously in other studies where uh, patients really felt that, they, that it was almost like a game that they were engaging in and that, that really decreased their sense of trust in the institution. So what did we do? Well, we, we settled on the gumball machine. Now, what we didn't realize is that this is um, quite generational, and most younger folks don't know what a gumball machine is. Um, but more than that, I mean, when we tested this out in terms of, you know, you're, you're going to be coming in, you're going to be getting drug A, B, and C, but it's similar to actually getting something out of a gumball, and it's, it's, there's no kind of master who's orchestrating this, but it's really luck, and it's random. Um, what we found is that there was still feelings of, well, you know, certain gumballs are better than others, uh, and, and, and how do we know that it's actually going to be a fair process? So this, this was not the point of the study, um, to, to, to really study metaphors, but what we found was trying to, um, trying to convey what was very complex was difficult, and that, um, that uh, we had to think more about the metaphors that we were using. So our, our study, the next study that really influenced our thinking um, was the value study. And this is a, a study that was funded through the National Library of Medicine. And this study was uh, focused on precision medicine research, again, on the learning healthcare system, uh, really trying to understand how diverse publics uh, thought about the collection of their biospecimens and their EHR data. Um, as part of their healthcare system. And so, again, this is a study where we develop comics and cartoons um, and, um, and videos as a way of trying to explain uh, this collection process and, and how this was going to be used in research. Um, value stands for patient values and attitudes about a library of knowledge, uses of EHRs and samples in research. I think we should win a prize for our acronym. But um, uh, this was a qualitative study that involved 20 focus groups uh, drawn on the population, uh, population of a community-based um, healthcare system uh, near Stanford. Um, the catchment area is very wide, and so it's actually a very diverse, um, diverse population. We worked with African-American, non-Hispanic white, South Asian, uh, Chinese, and Hispanic populations uh, to really understand what they, uh, what, 
what they thought about um, this precision medicine research. And in doing this, in order to support our discussions, we developed uh, videos on six different topics. So an introduction to precision medicine research, um, setting up the resource uses of data um, in potential uses of data in precision medicine research, issues around security and privacy, uh, consent, and then oversight. Um, we, we translated these videos into Spanish and, and Mandarin in order to uh, be able to conduct um, these, uh, these discussions. And in the, t in the process of developing these videos, we realized that, again, once again, we had these challenges around how to describe this central resource. Um, how do we think about this repository? Um, how do we even refer to it that's going to be um, used to collect uh, these, these different uh, sources of data? Um, and we, we defaulted on biobank, and, and frankly, this is the term that's used by many initiatives. Um, we did a little research to try to figure out, well, where did this come from? Um, and we, we found that you know, this has deep roots, and that actually uh, biobank uh, comes from this idea of the blood bank, which was derived from earlier uh, ways of thinking about bank in terms of um, it, I was very interested to see that blood preservation laboratory was changed to Cook County Hospital Blood Bank because it was actually much more palatable for the public uh, to go to a blood bank rather than to a preservation uh, laboratory, which makes sense. But we can see how that idea of a blood bank has extended into, um, into genomics and into precision medicine as kind of the legacy metaphor for thinking about um, this, this resource that's being developed. But what we found um, when we were developing our videos, and again, this was, this was not uh, research in the sense that we weren't um, collecting um, data, we weren't really focused on the metaphor, but what we found was that we kept stumbling uh, with the, in these discussions because they couldn't understand what the biobank was, mm -hmm. um, and that they really had a variety of interpretations, everything from uh, it being an organ or blood bank, to being a gold mine, to being a database, to being a financial bank. And so um, that, in that, that interpretation in particular um, was uh, very interesting in that uh, some of our participants automatically thought that, well, gosh, this is a financial bank which might be associated with commercial activities such as pharmaceutical or insurance companies. Um, which really drew a very strong negative reaction um, from participants. Um, and we're seeing as um, also the potential for not only um, explicit misuse, but also uh, the potential for uh, breaches of data privacy and, and issues around governance. Um, in addition, um, there was this view that, well, if it's a bank, then I'm a donor. And if I'm a donor in, or an investor, shouldn't I be getting something back in terms of my, uh, my participation in this biobank? And what is my return on that investment? And who is managing the biobank? Now, these are all great questions. Um, and it's important questions uh, in terms of how we think about precision medicine research and, and certainly and metaphors that we're using. Um, so uh, what we did um, is to start to, uh, even though this was not the intention of the study, we started to look at the ways in which these, this metaphor was being interpreted and to assess you know, how accurate um, were these metaphors in terms of the, the uh, stated goals of precision medicine research and then to try to capture what the valence was um, in terms of uh, each of these interpretations and how close it got to um, at least what, how, uh, how folks that were building this uh, precision medicine initiative uh, were thinking about this particular resource. And so we went through each of them and we realized, you know, there might be an opportunity here in our study to rethink the metaphor, to use something else. Um, and so we went through this process, uh, again with our five different groups of patients, um, and we threw out the idea of a pool or a reservoir um, with the idea that, well, you know, reservoirs are, 
are, are places where um, you have some, some control and it's a public good and that the quality is monitored and uh, new contents can be added. Um, it becomes um, unidentifiable uh, when you mix up the contents. Um, when it's empty, people understand that it should be filled. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we were thinking about. Um, the alternative was a library, um, a resource built by and for communities, partly made up on voluntary donations, a storehouse of information and knowledge, used for research, has controlled access. When it's empty, people understand that it should be filled. But more importantly, the library has a particular um, uh, status in terms of being a civic uh, civic resource, something that's shared by the community. Now, if we use that metaphor, how would that change the kinds of conversations that we're having about precision medicine research, and would, we, would they be different um, in, instead of using the biobank? So we were interested in that, in, in, in probing some of these, uh, probing the different populations about their views. Um, and so we used the, the, we decided to go with the library, uh, the Library of Medical Information. We um, used uh, the, this metaphor um, in terms of producing these various videos to explain um, the different aspects of precision medicine. Um, and generally, it was, it was, I think, very successful um, because it really brought in some of the questions around what does it mean to build a resource for the community? Um, what are the expectations and responsibilities? Um, what are the kinds of things that we would want in place to make sure that it was open to everyone? Um, that type of conversation, I think, um, was somewhat unique in our experience. And, but the, there were some difficulties. So this, this challenge of trying to translate the library metaphor in Chinese was not something that we anticipated. Um, literally, uh, it, it, there was no analogy um, and what, what folks kept talking about instead of a library was a database. Um, and then what happened was, um, as we were analyzing some of the discussion, the database became something that was a resource for the physician. So the idea there is that, well, this is great. Um, I will definitely want to participate if it's going to contribute to this database that the physician then will look into and figure out what therapy is good for me as their patient. So that type of, that, that idea of a return um, was even more striking in those particular populations where library um, wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, interpreted in the same way and, and rather uh, became a database. And so what we found was that you know, there, were, there were difficulties in terms of language um, that we had to be attuned to, um, but generally speaking, we, we thought that this was an interesting exercise because it really did produce uh, new kinds of conversations. Um, so the interpretation, so the implications of using a metaphor to explain a concept, um, I, we found were, were very important. We found that metaphors can be effective communication skills and can change public opinion um, and are very important in terms of conveying very difficult uh, technical and conceptual, um, conceptual information. I'm just going to quickly, I know we're running out of time, but I just wanted to invite you to, um, uh, to uh, think about this new project and if there are, interests, if, if, if there are folks who are interested in potential, uh, potential collaborations on this new project that we're embarking on, I would love to hear from you. So, We've taken what we've learned from these studies, and now we really want to think about how do we study this um, in a careful, careful way. And um, we have partnered with linguistic anthropologists um, who are familiar with these frameworks of, of cooperative communication. And as a result, we are now using what I think is a, even a more rigorous approach to metaphors, um, really looking at um, how uh, the locutionary and the illocutionary and the perlocutionary, basically these, these different um, steps in terms of conveying information from the utterer to the, to the receiver and, and trying to capture what the effect has been on, the, on that receiver. I know this is too fast to go through, but um, using some of the linguistic anthropology, we're going to uh, be trying to assess metaphors for their completeness, their accuracy, their clarity, and in particular, their relevance, depending on their cultural group. Um, and as part of this, we'll be interested in understanding that shared horizon of experience 
So how does group history, language, social norms, cultural beliefs, and practices uh, influence the, the effectiveness of communicating through metaphors? And then how does it impact uh, the, the, the outcomes that we're interested in, in terms of trust and understanding, um, and frankly, willingness to participate um, or not? Um, I'm just gonna end with this. Um, this is something that I just saw. Um, it's, it's been used as a way of describing to the public, this, this was uh, printed in, in Nature News, um, to describe CRISPR-Cas9, um, and, and it describes it in, in, as the disruptor of powerful gene editing technology, the biggest game changer to hit biology since PCR. And you can see here there's a little, um, there, there looks like a bomb is being yeah. embedded in the double helix, and the idea here is that CRISPR-Cas9 is the bomb squad um, that's going to remove uh, the bomb. It's also a black hand. It is a black hand, yes. So, so these visuals and the, and the type of metaphors that are being used as this emerging technology is being explained uh, to the public are, are extremely powerful, and I think it, I just want to end with, again, Lakoff and, and Johnson's um, uh, uh, call for metaphorical imagination to, to think about, uh, for us to think about um, metaphors that we live by and uh, to think about alternatives uh, as we uh, try to explain and try to make sense of these emerging technologies and what it means for us and human health and, and issues around equity and justice. And so I'll, I'll end there. Wow. Thanks very much. to see do people have questions I'm going to um, bring around a microphone okay let's see yes uh, thank you so much uh, thank you for mentioned that children develop new metaphors in conversation and uh, Joseph Campbell in his book The Inner Reaches of Outer Space went back to the culture uh, uh, to the feminine masculine used the kind of Indian but I'd like to ask you, whom did you work with to develop? Because you had to be working with very creative, almost artists, not scientists, to get where you are. Who did, whom did you choose? Oh, to develop the materials and the tools? Yeah. So we were lucky in that um, we, we partnered with a, a, a duo called Booster Shot Media. Um, both of them are clinicians, uh, but they also are um, uh, artists. And so they, were, they came with a lot of stock knowledge, um, which was really quite nice. And they had a lot of experience working with uh, diverse communities. And so um, it, was a, it was a nice partnership. There was a comment that was an article in the New York Times that said that government should brought in science and artists should. That's an interesting concept, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Roman Martinez, and I am a alumni of the American Medicine Program, and I am also a clinical research coordinator for the Alois Research Program mm -hmm. here at the Cancer Center. Um, my question remains, so what type of research input can we clinical research coordinators are in the field constantly changing our metaphors, changing how we interact with patients depending on demographics, um, I'm trilingual, so I, depending on if it's Hispanic or white, I just change my language constantly throughout the day. What type of input can we provide for this uh, metaphoric analysis that is being done um, throughout the United States or the world um, in terms of the different physician medicine initiatives? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that that, and we ran into this when we, um, when we were thinking about working with different populations and translating um, our materials into different languages. It's, it's, of course, as you know, not a matter of just simple translation, right? It's actually having to go back and working with the groups um, and trying to understand, well, is there, is there an analogous way of thinking about uh, this in, in this language, in this particular social cultural context. And so it's painstaking. It, it means delaying work. I mean, it means delaying timelines, essentially. And, and I think we're kind of loath to do that. But if we really care about trust and transparency and true communication, checking to make sure that um, the message that is sent 
is actually what's received, I think is so important. I will also say, um, you know, the metaphors that are being used are being used strategically and differently depending on the audience. And so um, I was looking through one institution's um, All of Us uh, materials, um, and those tend to be pretty standardized across groups. Um, again, very patient-centered, patient-focused about um, sharing and learning and public benefit. Um, but that same institution, in its description of precision medicine research and why we should be so invested in this, for the alumni and the um, business side, um, in terms of those audiences, um, we're using very different metaphors. So I'll give you the example of um, asset inventory was used as the resource. So if you think about what that refracts in terms of values and, and why, why we should be investing in this, an asset inventory, when you're thinking about the assets, who are the assets? Um, they're the individuals who are participating in the project. Um, that has a powerful way of transmitting, well, okay, what are the values here? What is the true investment and who's going to win and who's going to, you know, those kinds of questions come into play. And so I think we need to be careful and, and to really interrogate how we're conveying some of this um, in terms of its benefits. Yeah? Hi, I'm a medical educator and I work with a lot of um, undergraduate medical students. And one of the diseases that gets talked a lot about is uh, diabetes. And essentially, it becoming a it's an autoimmune disease. And so, my question is, um, where what is your advice for interrupting the metaphor chain from the biological, physiological level of the body attacking itself? Mm -hmm. um, I will talk to students, and I'll say, well, don't you think that could leave the patient with a feeling of self-loathing and a feeling that there's a battle going on inside? And they they really struggle with finding an alternative to that. So, what's your recommendation for? Interrupting the metaphor of battleground, the body is a battleground, because yes. that's how it's taught in early biology and pathophysiology. Yeah, no, I, I think it's such a, a dominant way of framing disease, and it's, I think, done in a way because, um, you know, it comes back, at least to me, it seems that the body is machine or body right. is a battleground, you know, as you say, that's, that's how much of medicine is taught, biomedicine is taught. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, I think it's, it's understanding and hearing the stories from the perspective of the patient and how it's being received, again, and playing it back to that clinician who obviously wants to care for this physician um, in a meaningful way. I think it's that kind of, we, we're so, um, there are not many opportunities to uh, really probe how people are receiving that information and what impact it has. And if we could conduct studies that actually show kind of those downstream effects of that metaphor, um, that would be powerful, I think. Yeah. I don't think there are any easy answers, though. But having conversations about this, I think, will, will, is kind of the beginning of rethinking the metaphors and what they're doing. Yeah? When you say rethinking metaphors, yes. When you say rethinking metaphors, in your example of the library, it seemed like a change or a shift in metaphors. How maybe to hold? How would you suggest to hold multiple metaphors for the same concept? Is there a way mm. that you can structure uh, like notices or the way that we talk about notices to have multiple metaphors, or do you think that there tends to always be one that we really latch on to? Well, I think it. it there tends to be one, but only because there are not that many um, voices. So I think that there has to be multiple because we interpret things very differently depending on where we're where we're sitting, right? So in, in our history, in our group's history, and so I absolutely think that there should be more metaphors to describe um, phenomena. Now, why is there only? There seems to be dominant metaphors, genes as codes or the genetic book. And um, those, I think, have to do with power relationships, right? I mean, science is what's, uh, science and scientists are framing the discussion in many ways in terms of the, the flow of information. And, and I guess what I'm trying to advocate and trying to encourage is that kind of backflow, the kind of to speak back and to be able to have a dialogue about what does that mean exactly, that genetics is a code? Does that somehow then put on certain, there's going to be certain constraints in how we think about disease if that is the dominant way, um, if that's the dominant trope, yeah? I think we have time for one more question. 
was wondering if you had any research or knowledge on the use of metaphors in like women's health and like reproductive health and like use of verbs like abort and miscarry and what that all means and stigma and shame with women. Yeah, you know, so Emily Martin, who's um, an, a medical anthropologist, I encourage you to, to read her, her work. She has done an amazing job at showing the ways in which uh, being, you know, having the female body is, a, is basically inherently, um, the ways in which we describe it is, is failure in many, in many ways. And, and uh, so I encourage you to read her book. There's lots of work that describe um, how our, our language is, is incredibly gendered um, and in a way that imbues certain values um, um, so yes, so I can point to some. I can send you some references if you'd like. So thank you, everyone. So really, share with me uh, my excitement and my sense that we have the beginnings of. Of an opening of great intellectual vitality and a kind of probing of the work we're doing here and work science is doing nationally and internationally um, that is unique and that will bring us in directions that we have no idea are in front of us. Please take, take time to come talk with Sandra, come to know her, and treasure her.